Welcome to episode 108 of the Swampflex podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I am James Cohn. And we are recording in two separate locations that's like a two-minute drive away in New Orleans, Louisiana. And this is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swampflex. So as we're recording today, this is a Friday night. It is the, I think opening of phase one of the uh, state reopening and allowing sort of like an easier rules on gathering (laughs) right now. This is after I think two months pretty much of like stay at home orders where you're supposed to be socially distancing and not really getting in close quarters. I have not talked to James much in those two months, a couple phone calls here or there. I saw you at the grocery store that one day and you kept six feet away from me on your birthday too. On my birthday. Yeah. I was getting beer. I really wanted to give you a hug, to be honest. And that encounter was the inspiration for this episode. It was like, why can't we figure out a way to get you on a computer to do this? Because I was, you know, I feel like I haven't talked to you in a while. I will say, um, this is very strange doing this without actually being in the room with you. And also, I got to learn how to use Skype, which I never thought (laughs) I would do. And I learned some stuff about computers and microphones. So, our... (laughs) Technical difficulties might have actually been educational, so. And it was absolutely riveting, so we're going to release all that footage of us fumbling through the settings on your Apple computer um, as a bonus episode after this, so people can listen to us um, try to figure out what was going wrong for 30 minutes. But yeah, dude, as far as the whole stay-at-home order thing, man, it's just been so weird. Everything feels very eerie, just going to the store and seeing everyone with masks and you know, it's very strange times. 2020 has not really worked out the way that I thought it would. Yeah. And I think that, you know, because we're a movie podcast, we've kind of been like, I mean, I've had a couple episodes with Brittany and CC hosting, and I feel like we've kind of been tiptoeing around the fact that everything's so weird right now and not like directly talking about coronavirus and like quarantine and stuff like that. But I guess like the sort of impetus of this episode was just like, I haven't seen my friend in a while and I haven't talked to you like at length for a minute so this seems like a pretty good opportunity just we're still going to talk about movies the whole episode but like just kind of talk about what it's been like to you know be socially distanced and like how our viewing habits have been changed by that and like sort of more directly engage with what watching movies in quarantine has been like and you know maybe talk about other weirder aspects of life outside of that as well I mean, does that sound about right about what we planned for today? Yeah, I mean, it's weird, you know, not being able to go to the movie theater. And I do think my viewing habits have changed, I guess, with having a little too much time on my hands. So I just have gravitated towards things that I wouldn't normally watch. And as of today, movie theaters are allowed to reopen at like a 25% capacity. And I've seen a lot of the local spots like Britannia and Broad and Shumet movies are all rolling out sort of like their own start dates between now and like early June. And to be honest, I'm not fully confident about how good of an idea that is for myself. Like speaking personally, I don't know about you, but like most of my social activity is going to the movies or talking with you or Brittany in person, you know? So like, I very much miss it, but I'm, I'm still not ready to like return to normal, like movie going life. And I'm not sure when I will be. Well, and I think some people, you know, friends I've talked to, they're very anxious to get out there and get out of their houses and go to these kind of places. And other people are like, hell no, I'm not going outside. Like, I'm going to stay in until they have a vaccine or 
So everyone kind of has different levels of fear going back out into the world. I mean, I remember when I talked to you yesterday, I was like, oh, well, you know, they lifted the stay at home order. Like you want to come over and do the podcast? You're like, hell no. (laughs) Yeah, that, that pretty much illustrates the two different places we are. But also like you and I are both because of our jobs, like not able to fully stay at home. I've only had to go in a few days in the past couple months but you're more out of your house, like on a daily basis. So you and I have like two different realities about like being in public in general. Well, yeah, I mean, cause I've been working this whole time and you know, I work in a, a wine warehouse with a lot of other people and we're getting containers from France or wherever. So I haven't really felt the isolation aspect quite as much as some other people. And it's been kind of nice to be able to like, honestly, for me to go to work have the, you know, my work life over there and then come home and it still feels like, ah, good, I'm home. Where some people I think are going a little stir crazy because their work life and their personal life, home life is like all mingling together. So yeah, I don't don't know. It's very strange. How are you handling everything? Well, I'm kind of a, I don't want to say happy because the world's like ending and I'm like terrified of getting sick. And every time my job like calls me in, I feel like my world is crashing, you know, like my little safety bubble gets popped. But uh, on a like day-to-day basis when I'm actually just staying home and, you know, I'm working on a laptop with the same headset I'm recording uh, over Skype with you right now. And I'm, I'm kind of glued to it eight hours a day. And then I get to walk away from that and work on like personal home projects, you know, just like keeping the house tidy and kept up. And then, you know, squeezing in movies and TV where I can, you know, after dinner or something like that. So on a day-to-day basis, my life really hasn't changed that much. And I'm kind of an indoor, isolated person in general. Like, I, I usually have these very small-scale social interactions already. So, yeah, I miss going to the movies, and I miss going to, like, drag shows, and I miss going over to your house where I see, like, maybe two or three people at a time. But I could perpetually live like this forever if it weren't for the threat of dying of a, uh, you know, a debilitating virus. So that's where I'm at right now. Like on the surface, on like a daily practical level, I feel completely fine. But there's this like existential terror about something that's like trying to break into my home and kill me uh, or like lure me out of the house where I'm more more vulnerable. And and, like that's what's really like driving my mood, depending on whether or not I have to leave the house. I feel safe here. I will say like as this has gone on longer and longer, I've actually gotten like, I guess, more scared. Like in the beginning, wasn't really wearing a mask when I went out, I was like, oh, you know, I had the attitude I think a lot of people had. It's like, oh, I'm young. I have a good immune system. Like, even if I caught it, you know, it wouldn't be the end of the world. I wouldn't die. And then as it's gone on, I've learned more about like how I can be an asymptomatic carrier and give it to someone else. And I've sort of like started to freak out for other people and like how my actions could affect them. So, you know, started wearing a mask even though it's really hard to wear it wearing glasses because oh, yeah. uh, it just fogs up. like, And then my glasses slip off and they're all foggy. And, and you're not supposed to touch your face. So right. like adjusting your glasses is a whole thing. It's very hard to do. So I try to make my grocery trips extremely brief. We've been going once every like three to four weeks. We're trying to push it to five weeks this current go uh, to go to the grocery store. So like meals get very odd and not bad, but just sort of like not what I would usually eat towards the end. Like we have to like get creative with like our basic components in the last like week leading up to the grocery store trip. Yeah. I mean, we probably go 
to the grocery store way more than we should. I think probably because it's so close. You know, we're like a block away from Winn-Dixie. So if we need something, just pop over there. But yeah, I, I feel very uneasy about this whole reopening thing. You know, there's part of me that wants to go back out and maybe go shopping or see a movie or whatever, or go to a restaurant. There's another part of me that feels like it's way too early and yeah. I don't want to put other people at risk. So it's just hard to weigh those two things. So that's where we currently are just in a like, how's life kind of way. I mean, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're taking things seriously because I, I don't know what other people's attitudes really are because a lot of people are just kind of quiet about their own personal response to this. But I guess just on a podcast related note i also am very curious about what you've been watching and like putting into your brain in these like uh terrifying uh last month month or so i've actually like kind of gravitated away from movies during this self-quarantine time um been watching a lot of like old sitcoms that i grew up on like in the 80s and 90s like watching a ton of golden girls and watching Family Matters, and also like watching the show Baskets with Zach Galifianakis that came out a few years ago. I was watching a lot of TV, honestly, which is not yeah. really what I do. When it, it first started, I was kind of like, I had this goal, like I was going to watch like every Martin Scorsese movie, and then, you know, watched a few, and then I was like, yeah, you know what, like I just want to watch some Golden Girls. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I've caught some movies here and there but for the most part man just yeah a lot of tv and been playing dominoes you know playing guitar stuff like that just to pass the time i think i've started six different fashion related reality competition shows uh since march i i've currently like six or seven seasons into project runway and i've kind of contextualized it as like it's really satisfying to watch someone complete a artistic project from like start to end in like a day where like mm-hmm. it's a lot harder for me to focus on something like that right now. But also the truth of it is just, it's so easy to watch like reality TV. Like it requires very little thought. I get in the rhythm of watching that formula over and over again. And I could just like go through hundreds of hours of it and never get bored. I know like we've been watching like Songland and like there's this new season of the bachelor where they're joining up romantically, but also as musicians, and they get judged on their musical performance, but also if they come across as like in love on stage. It's very bizarre, but yeah, we've been watching a lot of like music competition stuff too, and, and it's exactly what you're saying. Like that format, just watch like hours on end. Because <laughs> honestly, in the beginning, I was watching a lot of movies, but for me, like. After about the fourth or fifth movie in a day, it starts to become like a little too much and you need to just throw on an episode of Golden Girls and hang out with the the ladies for a few hours. I don't know if I would have the attention span for that many movies in a row either. Like I don't even ever get to that point at like a film festival and those like zap me after like a week, you know, of watching like two or three movies a day. Yeah. Well, the sort of theme of the episode is you asked me when we talked on the phone recently, like what were the best movies I've seen since quarantine? And like you and I picked a couple of our favorites that we'd like, I guess discovered over the last couple months, Mm -hmm. but have there been any other movies that stand out despite the television uh, takeover? No, it's just uh, golden girls all day. That's all (laughs) is running through my brain. But what, what about yourself? 
Anything that stands out? I know you probably watched quite a few. Yeah, I tried this thing that I thought was kind of fascinating. I, I have been getting drawn to these sort of like makeshift quarantine like substitutes for like real life, like the uh, at home SNL episodes or like pro wrestling has been fascinating lately. Just them like getting around the weirdness of not being able to go through their normal routine in these like sort of unconventional ways. I mean, yeah, on that note, the cinematic matches that WWE has been doing the last few pay-per-views have been some of the most entertaining shit I've seen, I think ever from WWE, like that Boneyard match, the John Cena, Bray Wyatt Funhouse match, this Money in the Bank where they're going through the corporate offices, um, just really entertaining stuff. And it's, I don't know, it's kind of cool when their back's against the wall, they can do some of the most creative stuff they've done in years. That Firefly Funhouse match is legitimately my favorite wrestling segment I've ever seen in my entire life. Like, I, I don't even yeah. need to qualify that in any way. It's like David Lynch. Yeah, exactly. Into the darkest recesses of John Cena's psyche. <laughs> One is really nice, to too, watch. because sometimes you feel like WWE has a short-term memory and they don't even kind of remember their own storylines and the fans that really obsess over the stuff that pay attention to the details can kind of be disappointed. But that match was so great because it had all these little cues to like stuff in John Cena's past that if you're a hardcore fan, like you got these little references and it felt like you were being rewarded for being a fan, which was really cool. Yeah. And I think it's also surreal enough that someone who doesn't know, like, all the backstory about John Cena, like refusing to turn heel or like his past run-ins with Wyatt would still find it just sort of interesting as like a, just a bizarre short film. It really is like one of the best little pieces of cinema I've seen uh, this year from any outlet. I also um, found uh, this thing on Amazon prime. They had for a week. One of the first big cancellations this year was the South by Southwest festival. Uh, which has its own like film festival wing. Mm -hmm. And what they did was for a week, they put a small selection of their feature films that they programmed on Amazon prime for free. Like I didn't even think you needed a prime account to watch them. They were just like on the platform. So I watched a few of those uh, when they were available. So it was like film festing at home uh, without the crowds. You get to watch these like little low budget indie movies that don't have distributors on this uh, streaming platform. That's cool. I mean, one thing I would, was interested to hear your take on kind of in that same vein is since the theaters have closed, a lot of movies are getting distributed straight to streaming services and then they'll charge, you know, like 20 bucks or whatever. And I was thinking like, you know, it scares me a little bit that that might be the future of like where this is headed. If this shutdown keeps going on and on, like, it seems film companies would want to kind of cut out the middlemen of theaters and just go straight to, you know, Amazon Prime and then you pay a premium, like 20, 30 bucks to get a ticket. I wonder if you thought that was like kind of the, the future. I'm not convinced. I think the few pieces of data they've let leak out are the movies that did well. Like I think Trolls World Tour made like a ton of money right. on VOD. I don't know that it compares to how much money it would have made if it was in the theaters, but also it's a kid's film. So it's like a very niche genre where you have these like children at home who their parents are sort of exhausted uh, and need to keep their kids entertained for a couple hours. They, they might fork out the money for like a new release. That's like bright and colorful and attention grabbing. I'm not convinced that like 
Fast and Furious 9 or whatever is going to uh, pull in that money, or at least as much money if, as it would if it was like an IMAXs across the world. And I, I think it's pretty clear right now that, that people are itching to get out of the house and back into these like social scenarios. I think a lot of people would fucking kill to go to the movies right now if they knew it was safe, you know? So I think we're not going to be able to tell how viable that is until theaters are back open and a couple bigger movies like the new Christopher Nolan movie or like a Fast and Furious sequel opens. And then we could see the difference between that and what right. kind of business they were doing on VOD. I'm just scared because everyone's kind of talking about the masks and social distancing is going to be like the new normal for at least, I don't know, a year, two years. You might still see people at the grocery store with masks. And I wonder if theaters are going to like fill back up again or are people still going to be apprehensive six months from now? I'm just kind of worried about Broad and some of those indie theaters like if they're going to be able to survive this it's really hard to imagine they have the money to like hold on to the spaces you know hopefully they can bounce back i i, I don't feel confident in any way predicting what the future is going to be like like i've kind of given up on that because i i don't feel stable enough to see any kind of trends into the future but i do think that there's enough of a social ritual to like going to the movies that that will be maintained in some capacity I hope so. And it might start with like, you know, when we were kids and the AMC palaces came in and like basically tore up all the independent theaters and there were none left for a while. And we've slowly seen them creep back in. So it might be a, a minute where there's only like giant megaplexes and the small mm-hmm. you know, contenders can't afford to compete, but maybe like they'll slowly creep back in. But uh, like I said, I have no clue. I just know that, you know, in my mind, at least I might be a little naive, but I think people enjoy the ritual of going out. Oh, oh yeah, they do. And a movie means more to you when you see it in a theater with a crowd, too. Oh, of course, yeah. I, I would never want that to go away. Also, I don't think it's as affordable as they're making it seem. Like, a lot of independent theaters right now have these, like, VOD options where you can, you know, pay $13 to watch the new, you know, Art House movie of the week, and that money or a part of it goes to, you know, the indie theater of your choice. But... I don't know about you, but I can't afford to spend like fourteen, fifteen dollars on a movie every week. I don't I don't have that kind of money. No. I've been not paying for new stuff. I've been, you know, kind of relying on the streaming services I have budgeted already and then sort of like working around individual projects I have for the website and for the podcast. But I haven't been seeking out the newest release for $15. It used to be cheaper to go to the movies than that. Yeah. But uh, the South by Southwest thing was interesting, though, because it's like it was sort of a public service almost because it was free. It was like, you know, we know you're stuck at home. Here are a few movies that don't have distributors. And they were pretty much okay for the most part, the ones I saw. There was this one called I'm Gonna Make You Love Me that was like a documentary about this gay man in his like 60s who in the 70s and 80s um, transitioned. He was like a female nightclub singer in New York at mm. the time. He was like living as a trans woman for about a decade. And then sort of realized that a lot of the decisions that influenced him to transition were like for survival and not necessarily because it was how he identified like internally. And he like detransitioned afterwards. And it ended up being this like really fascinating story just to hear someone like struggle with like their gender identity over a very storied couple of decades in like New York city history. Mm-hmm. And it was just like a very like niche queer perspective that you don't normally see in movies 
which is the exact kind of thing that I normally like seek out at film festivals. And then the movie itself was just like not very good, which also reminded me of like the kind of stuff I pad out my like film festival schedules with. That was interesting, but not great. There's another movie called Selfie that was like for me kind of. It was like a sketch comedies showcase about social media stuff, like kind of like a Black Mirror sketch show where like they mm-hmm. were making fun of like people for being obsessed with like Uber ratings and uh, YouTube celebrities and stuff like that. I enjoyed it and got a few laughs out of it, but it's not necessarily something I would like go around praising <laughs> to everyone because it's like so specifically tailored to like what I'm interested in personally that I don't know that I could recommend it to like everybody. I got you. There's one that I really like though. And I, I think more people should see it. It's called Le Choc du Futur, the shock of the future. It's this French movie set in the late seventies in Paris. And it's all in like one apartment. You watch this woman wake up and do her like morning stretches, like her morning exercises. And then she flips on all this like synth recording equipment you know, like a Moog and like a A-track machine and like um, all these different mixers and syncopate, syn- what do you call it, syncopator? Or like a MIDI controller yeah. thing? or Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking more like a beatbox. It's like a sampler that can syncopate the sound. Honestly, a bunch of very confusing, heavy analog equipment that like takes up half of the apartment that she's living in that I don't know what each piece does individually. Mm-hmm. The character's played by Alma Hodorowski. It's like Hodorowski's granddaughter. Oh, the Holy Mountain? Yeah. Oh, awesome. And she just goes about her day as this like synth, like early analog synth musician um, who has to pay her bills by doing like songs for commercials, but really wants to make this like weird cutting edge synth pop that doesn't really have an audience. And I both really liked it just because, you know, I can listen to early analog synth stuff like all day. And the movie like name drops a lot of and like does some needle drops for a lot of bands around that time, like Throbbing Gristle and Kraftwerk and Devo and Suicide yeah. and all that stuff. Love that stuff. And then also it's just like this, you know, very simple story about this girl who never leaves her apartment and is working on this art project that no one else cares about and is like very isolated. And some people drop by, but for the most part, she's like doing this all like by herself with these like weird machines. And it's like, yeah, this is a great quarantine movie. Like it just really like felt appropriate to the time. So yeah, I, I thought that one was really great. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, is it still on Amazon prime? Cause I want to check it out. It's not, it's like, you know, with all film festival stuff, like you had a window to watch it and now it's gone. Now you have to wait for like a distributor. So yeah, I don't know. It's just, like weird, like replicating the film festival experience at home. Now I will keep an eye out on it and I'll tell you when it's available again. But uh, for now, what I can say is that they're doing this like larger version of this like South by Southwest experiment later in the month Mm -hmm. from May 29th until June 7th. There's this thing on YouTube. uh, It's going to be called We Are One Global Film Festival, uh, where like every major film fest you could think of, like Cannes and uh, Sundance and TIFF, all the big players are all going to throw in a bunch of titles that have not picked up distributors yet that they've already programmed. I, I don't know if necessarily these are new movies from this year, but it's like movies that have not been seen outside of like film festival circuits yet for free on YouTube for like a week. Oh, cool. And when is that you said? Uh, the 29th through June 7th. So it's like a full week of just like free, no budget indie movies on YouTube. I have no idea what the selection is going to be like. It could be all crap, <laughs> but you know, it's the kind of thing where you have to like dig through the, like the monotonous, uh, 
fodder to like find the little pieces of gold. We got plenty of time in our hands. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, check it out. I, I had that like thrill of the discovery that you get when you're like, are trying to figure out what movies to watch for the week. And you only have like a window to go to the theater to try something out. Um, so I really enjoyed the South by Southwest experience, even though like only one movie jumped out at me. Yeah. that I mean, that sounds cool, dude. I definitely want to check out a thing in June. That sounds awesome. Yeah. I'll send you a little reminder when it's coming up. Yeah, definitely. Cause you know, I'm terrible at remembering things. And time means nothing right now. Yeah, what day is it? I really don't know. <laughs> well, uh, we are going to talk about the movies we watched together next. We each picked out our like favorite movies that we watched alone in quarantine and like oh, yeah. shared them. We're going to talk about four different movies. I think two of them are more like our middle ground of like stuff that we enjoyed you know, together. And then I think two of them are more like a James movie and a Brandon movie. I, I thought the exact same thing. That's why I'm kind of excited. Cause okay, it's great. definitely the, the gambit here. Yeah. <laughs> full spectrum. So, and all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. So close. The infinitesimal and the infinite. But suddenly I knew they were really the two ends of the same concept. The unbelievably small and the unbelievably vast eventually meet like the closing of a gigantic circle. And now it's time for our movie, The Minute. This is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. And this time it was James's turn to pick. Uh, What did you make me watch for this episode? So I made you watch a film from 1957, a sci-fi flick called The Incredible Shrinking Man. This movie kind of came on my radar. I was... Reading online about that classic era of like 50s sci-fi. And this one kept popping up as like one of the best of the genre. And so I watched some of the other ones first. And then I I watched this and I was completely blown away. I loved it so much. I think I immediately texted you after it was over. I was like, have you seen this? You got to see it. It's so good. So it's based on a novel with the same name. The novel's called The Shrinking Man. But, you know, same idea. Did you notice who wrote it? Well, is it Richard Matheson? Yeah, uh, he also wrote Button Button, which is the uh, Twilight Zone story that the box was based off of. Well, I know he also did um, I Am Legend. Yeah. I think Stir of Echoes. I mean, that's all good and fine, but the box, man. That movie's so good. (laughs) No, I love the box. So anyway, the story is about this couple, Scott and Louise, I believe. So they're just like chilling on a boat, you know, having a good time. And this toxic, weird fog envelops Scott. And he doesn't really think anything of it. They go back home and he notices that like his shirt's not really fitting right. He used to like stand above his wife. And now when they kiss, they're at eye level. And he's like obviously concerned because he seems to be shrinking. So he goes to the doctor and the doctors can't really figure out what's wrong with him. He just keeps on shrinking <laughs> to where like he can't fit in his clothes. Then he's like sitting on like, like a chair and he just looks like a little child. And it, the movie keeps progressing and eventually it gets to kind of the microscopic level. He And it, there's a lot of fun the movie has with this where, you know, there's a great scene where the cat attacks him in this little dollhouse, and then he goes even smaller, he falls into the basement, and then he's trying to get away from this tarantula. And basically the whole time he's just 
trying to like survive essentially. And what really, really blew me away with this movie was first of all, just how fun it is to see this guy just keep shrinking. And the movie has like a really good, I think sense of humor about it. And it's very playful with the scenarios it puts him in, especially that cat scene, which is fantastic. And then with the tarantula stuff, which I hate spiders. So that scene freaked me the hell out. (laughs) (laughs) And then I think what really like made the movie a home run for me is it actually ends on this like kind of beautiful philosophical statement about life and how we're so small in the universe, but we still have a purpose. We still have meaning kind of out of nowhere. Like that just sort of like intrudes in the movie. Like nothing you see before makes you believe that this movie has any like philosophical thoughts in its head. And then it ends on a very like deep sort of note, which I actually loved that it tied it up that way. But to me, I think the practical effects are amazing in this movie, considering it's 1957 and it does a remarkable job using the sets and, you know, certain camera techniques to successfully portray him as this like very tiny man. Again, it's just, just funny seeing him like little him, like in a, in a dollhouse and he's like trying to be with his wife and all this stuff. And I I just had a blast with it of that, like era of sci-fi films. Like I think this is like definitely my favorite so yeah, I, I was just really enamored with this movie. I'm curious what you thought. Well, I mean, in general, this is like the style of movie that I usually watch and praise. Like, this is very similar to like my viewing taste naturally. It reminded me of a lot of movies I love, like Attack of the Puppet People or The Man with the X-Ray Eyes. Uh-huh. I Married a Monster from Outer Space. Like, I love this like era of like sci-fi B-pictures. It was the kind of thing that I probably got into through Mystery Science Theater, like, making fun of it. And then, like, eventually was like, I don't need those robots making fun of the movies anymore. I could just watch them on their own. So it does have that kind of, like, G. Willikers, like, cheesy Atomic Age, like, sci-fi stuff to it. What really stood out to me at first, though, was the opening act, I feel like, really taps into something very specific that, like, makes men fearful or, like... It's, it's tapping into, like, a very classic, like, macho conundrum where, like, you have to be the biggest, strongest person in the room at all times. And, like, the fact that he's, like, shrinking and, like, no longer as big as his wife, uh, I feel like is a very gendered crisis. I, I don't know if you picked up on that at all. Yeah, no, I thought that's exactly what was happening in the first act where, like, you know, he's supposed to be the protector and the strong man and he's literally gets to a point where he's shorter than his wife. His hands are so small. The ring falls off. He can't fit into his pants. Uh, And he basically is like going back into the state of being a child. And in the first half of the movie, he has this like existential crisis because he like, you know, is talking to his wife and he's like the size of like a baby. And he's still trying to like have that air of like manhood about him. And obviously he can't. And it's, very emasculating for him and even in like the first scene before he gets starts shrinking he's like acting kind of like a bully he's like trying to manipulate her into getting a beer for him and he sort of playfully calls her a wench and like i i think the movie's very conscious about like 
his need to be the dominant person in that relationship. And then like really turning that on its head in like a really sweaty, like nervous way. And that, that really like grabbed my attention. I was like, wow, this movie's really like tapping into something that would make a lot of like American men in like the conservative 1950s, like very uncomfortable. It kind of loses me a little bit once he's stuck in the basement. Cause the movie's only 80 minutes long and it moves like at a clip. It's just like zooming along. Yeah. And then it gets to that basement bit where basically for days he's waging war against that tarantula and it just sort of stops dead in its tracks and like really lost the momentum for me. My interest sort of dipped because it was no longer about the macho stuff. The way I took it is like, you know, we talked about how it ends on this like philosophical note. And I do think it all sort of ties together where he's like so worried about like these kind of human concerns about being, you know, the strong man in this relationship. And when that goes away, when he's literally so small, he falls into the basement and no one notices him. Then it becomes more like just existential concerns. Like, how do I survive? My wife has left me. She's moved out the house. I'm in this basement. Now it's just like as a creature that's just trying to survive. And it's it kind of shifts. And it's about something just more animalistic than like humanly concerned. And that kind of like you know, man's dominion over nature definitely ties into the first act. Like the way he is like so fixated on dominating that spider instead of just like avoiding it. I definitely fits into like a macho attitude. It's just, I feel like it sort of gets stuck down there. It really like sort of spins its wheels uh, because it wants to dwell on that stuff. And I think it's because that's where it gets to really show off its special effects work a lot. The technical side. Yeah, definitely. And that doesn't really interest me that much after a while. But then I really agree that it pulls itself back together for that final monologue where he has this sort of like philosophical breakthrough where he's like, it doesn't matter how big I am. Like the infinitely big and the infinitely small are basically the same in God's eyes. And like, he really just like goes galaxy brain in those last like 30 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> yeah. Which I, which I love. I mean, I think for me, I, I do see what you're saying, I think, because the film is so brief, which is one reason that I love it. I love movies that are under an hour and a half, where oh, it just yeah. it feels like you watch like an episode of TV, but you're like, oh, shit, that was like an hour, 20 minutes. Like This movie especially, that first probably 50 minutes flies by. And then, yeah, when you're down in the basement, it gets a little more drawn out. And then, you know, I think it ends on a very high note. But... I think for me, it just hit all the boxes. It was about this like kind of toxic masculinity, which for the 50s, I think was pretty awesome for like a sci-fi film that it was willing to go there. And then you get these kind of technical set pieces that are pretty amazing for their time. And then you get this like very poignant message about humanity at the end. So for me, it just like gave me everything I want from this kind of movie. And again, that, that cat scene is one of my favorite scenes. It was, that was such a blast. That kind of like composite, like rear projection thing where he's like in the dollhouse and the cat's like the whole size of the window. Yeah. It's really fun. He also names his cat Butch, which is like totally what a macho like bully would name their cat. If they like, didn't want to seem like a sissy, Uh, I'm going to call my cat Butch. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) There's definitely some like character development too. For the Scott character, which, you know, again, for that kind of atomic age, like sci-fi movie, I do think is like 
pretty unusual. You know, earlier you were talking about how like you like movies being this short. One of the reasons that they used to be like 60 to 80 minutes, especially sci-fi movies, is they used to be for double bill drive-in uh, experiences. Um, and that's something that's been coming back uh, in the like quarantine era that we're currently living through is like drive-ins are like seeing a spike in business uh, in other mm-hmm. states. We, we don't have one here in Louisiana or not nearby anyway. That would be lovely to see that come back like two 70 minute, you know, sci-fi or horror pictures on a double bill at a drive-in sounds fucking fantastic right now. Uh, so I don't know. That was like a treat in itself. I think I heard there used to be a drive-in in New Orleans. Oh, I'm sure there was. Like back in, I think the eighties or so kind of in your area, you're like broad and I forget exactly where it was, but yeah, I, I think they should definitely bring back. The Have you ever been to theaters. one before? I went to one when I was dating this girl that lived in Florida. Saw a double feature of Constantine and The Ring. I think it was part two. <laughs> Damn, that's a long sit. <laughs> yeah, it was a blast, though. I mean, I, I love driving theaters. I think I saw a double bill of Twilight and like the, I want to say like the exorcism of Emily Rose or something like really generic like that. Um, and we mm-hmm. were the only people in the parking lot and we just opened the back of the car and like drank like a case of beer with like six people. <laughs> so, Sounds I don't know. great. Yeah, it was fun. And one more like quarantine related thing I wanted to bring up with this movie too. I kind of want to like tie in everything we watched with like what the stay at home experience has been like. And I think this one's pretty obviously on the mark. Yeah. I mean, he's literally trapped in his house. He's too small to leave. Uh, and the the smaller he gets, the more trapped he becomes. He just like really like sinks into this role as like a bug that's stuck in the basement. So that was very relatable. What's interesting about that too is like, you know, he's stuck in the basement and there's this like grate that leads to the outside and he can't fit through it. So he basically just tries to survive. You know, he kills the spider and eventually he gets so small that he is able to go through the grate out into like the grass or whatever I thought that was interesting that, like, the thing that is afflicting him is ultimately what, like, kind of saves him in a way, too. And you could make that case with this quarantine stuff. I mean, it sucks. We're getting very isolated, very insular. But as, like, you know, a group of people, we're all in this together. Like, that is ultimately what is going to save lives. And just like it saved him. So maybe I'm, like, reaching a little bit there. I don't think so. And what's funny, too, I was reading that the producers originally wanted... You know, the happy ending, which I was expecting the whole time. Like, oh, they'll find the anecdote and he'll, um, you know, get to be his regular size and get back with his wife. And the director stuck to his guns and he was like, no, this is the ending I want. And I think that's a huge reason why I liked it as much as I did is like he's literally just going to shrink into oblivion until he's like the size of a neuron or something. I love that you rarely see this, but like they played this for test audiences and their responses were like, what the fuck did the ending mean? I have no idea what that was even saying, uh, which is not something you, you normally see in these like sort of atomic age sci-fi pictures. And then they kept the ending anyway, which that is beautiful. Like <laughs> the fact that they got away with this. Yeah, I remember reading that on Wikipedia and one of them, one of the comments was like, this is an insult to the brain power of my two year old son or something and can't you do better this is sad and these kind of comments but whatever dude audiences shouldn't be able to dictate 
how the film ends. So, yeah, I'm glad he stuck to his guns because it's a great ending. It's terrifying at some points. It's, like, very funny. It's a blast. So I think people should definitely check it out. I don't think I need to tell you that today was a hot one. That old Mercury zoomed on up to 91. That's a record-breaking temperature for this day. Tomorrow promises to be more of the same, with relevant numbers way up there in the 90s, humidity to match, and maybe just the hint of a breeze or two. Won't be much help with this heat. The kind of heat that makes you want to just head for that old swimming hole with my friend James and strip off everything, including my panties, which you can see right through anyway, and poke my soft pink tongue in his mouth and slide my hand way up the inside of his leg until he's so hot that he rolls over on top of me. And I'm yelling, James, his name, James, James. So like I said, we both picked a couple movies that were like common ground. And I think Incredible Shrinking Man was pretty close to like what I normally watch anyway. So I was very happy to have that recommendation. And I picked a movie you said you've seen before, but it's just been so long that you hadn't. Oh, it's been at least 10 years. And it was something I just sort of happened to find, I think earlier this year maybe late last year at a thrift store just on DVD. I really liked the poster. It's called to die for from 1995. When you asked me when we talked on the phone, like what was the best movie you've seen in quarantine so far? It wasn't even a question. Like this is the first one that jumped out of my mind and I had never heard of it before. I just picked up the DVD sort of randomly. I didn't even know that Gus Van Sant directed it until I was watching it. The poster is just Nicole Kidman posing in this like shoulderless dress mm-hmm. in this like seductive pose that feels very like 90s erotic thriller, like that, like basic instinct. And what were those, uh, those Adrian Lynn movies we watched recently? Or yeah, like Sliver and stuff. I've watched that recently too. But yeah, I know exactly. Fatal Attraction, that kind of era. So yeah, it was just like a very 90s seductive Nicole Kidman on the cover. So I was not prepared for what the movie actually is. And I was just really won over by it like immediately. And it felt like a sort of common ground between our two aesthetics too. So I was excited to have someone to talk to about it. So To Die For is from 1995. Nicole Kidman is playing this like sort of fictionalized surrogate for this real life person named Pamela Smart. Um, She was a tabloid famous person for basically seducing these young teens in this like small town to kill her husband mm-hmm. um, and, and sort of became famous in the tabloids because of that. I, f- I feel confident spoiling that ahead of time because the movie opens with Nicole Kidman being interviewed at her husband's funeral by paparazzi. Uh, so there's, there's no real spoilers in the movie. It's playing off your like previous knowledge of like the Pamela smart story. It's one of those stories where it's not the ending itself. It's like how we get there. That's so interesting. And what really stuck out to me was just the like bubbly femininity that she plays with this like femme fatale character in the fictionalized version. She's a local weather girl for like a cable TV station, like cable access, not even like a nationwide cable station, like local cable weather girl who has these dreams of like making it big in the big city and wants to become famous in this sort of like traditional way. And what she finds is by having her husband killed and becoming this like tabloid fixture, Uh, She becomes famous in this way she did not expect, but she loves it just as much. Mm -hmm. As soon as the tabloids start interviewing her on camera, she lights up. She's like, finally, my big break on TV. 
the reason she had her husband killed was because he did not want her to move away to the big city. Uh, he's played by Matt Dillon, who was also in Gus Van Sant's Drugstore Cowboys. Uh, he plays this sort of like meathead Italian stereotype. Who, Which like, he, he's great at playing, by the way. Oh, yeah. He's a great idiot doofus. My favorite detail is his like local rock and roll cover band is like so shitty. <laughs> <laughs> he plays drums in this like dive bar cover band and they're just like so unremarkable in every way, but it's still enough for him to get laid. I love too. It's like when I was watching them play, like you could tell his drumming isn't even in sync with the music. So it just added another level to how shitty they are but you know he he likes feeling like this big shot on the local scene and that's what attracts her to him but then she realizes he has like limitations he wants her to become this like housewife to him and like raise children and she wants to be the next like diane sawyer or whatever like she wants to be this like on-air journalist personality uh, and he's like holding her back so what she does is she do seduces this like small enclave of these like dirtbag mouth-breathing metalheads at like the local high school most significantly Joaquin Phoenix plays this like just total vacuum of a person uh, just like completely empty in his head his name is James by the way which I thought was funny uh, <laughs> I love the opening credits too when like the oh, yeah. black metal comes in and then I'm like you know what like I might have hung out with this crowd in high school <laughs> And yeah, he um, is easily seduced by her and easily manipulated into killing her husband. And then she has this like thrill from being famous because of it. The movie has this very bubbly pop art kind of feel to it. Like you said, the opening credits have this very distinct like style where it looks like up close photography of tabloids where you see that like print effect that like Lichtenstein where it's all dots close up. And then that's, played with this like alternating between this like very 90s like score from Danny Elfman it sounds like it's Tim Burton sort of like whimsical scores and then it's like interrupted every now and then by this like speed metal like thrash riff kind of like sensibility (laughs) that keeps like coming in Um, so that's all fun and good and then also Nicole Kidman's performance as this person who enjoys this like fame for being a murderer reminded me so much of like John Waters's leading women mostly the ones played by divine Mm -hmm. where you don't really see that a lot in mainstream movies but in john waters movies like all these women love being famous for killing people so i just loved seeing that sort of like sensibility echoed in like a mainstream sort of erotic thriller template it was a very unusual venue for that for that kind of like winking satire and i feel like nicole kidman did a great job like making it seem fun and light and bubbly, even though like the material is so dark. So what what did you get out of watching to die for a second time? Well, first of all, I would say Nicole Kidman, her performance is really amazing. She's basically playing someone with this like personality disorder, some sort of antisocial. She's obviously like very manipulative. And I really loved the choice to do that kind of mockumentary sort of style and have her like just face the camera and it's like you're being manipulated by her too you know what i mean and like you're starting to get sucked in to her world and her lies and everything and I-, I thought that was a really smart choice watching it again i like forgot how funny it is it's like wickedly funny it seemed very i guess prescient like of the time when you think about the 90s 
and like all the tabloid like that was the height of like Gary Springer and well you got OJ Simpson and Lorena Bobbitt uh, the John Bonet Ramsey investigation. You know, and we still have stuff like that, but now it's shifted to like this internet age. But this is like where TV was the central mode of like communication. And she's obsessed with being on television. Like no matter what gets her there, that doesn't really matter. Like being on TV is her goal no matter what. Well, and she has a great monologue too about fame and about how like if you do anything, why does it matter if no one's watching? I thought that monologue was great because it sums up a lot of like that era. So it felt like an artifact of like that nineties tabloid scene. And again, I I think the choice to do that in a mockumentary sort of style was very smart. Honestly, like I was thinking back of other movies that Gus Van Sant has done. And I think this is probably my favorite. I agree. I've never seen him quite like this funny and this delicious. Yeah. It's just like a wild ride. It's definitely my favorite from him. I think um, maybe up until now, Drugstore Cowboys has been my favorite for like the longest one, yeah. time. Mm-hmm. But there's something about this one that just really is him firing in all cylinders and like really touching on that same like serial mom, like 90s John Waters tone that I already love. Like it felt like it was him meeting me halfway. I would even say like Nicole Kidman is like one of my favorite actors and this might be my favorite performance from her too. Yeah. And that's only me watching it like two times in the past month. It's smart too. Like the dialogue is cutting and like it could have failed because it has, I guess, sort of a broad subject just about thirst for fame and the media and, but it nails it. Like everything just works. Yeah. It's not all that remarkable of a, like a satirical object. Like I said, John Waters had probably made like six or seven movies on this exact same topic by the time this had come out. But the very particular sense of humor it brings to it, especially with that Danny Elfman score mixed with the like the thrash metal and also just like the very like 90s centric version of it. Like like you said, like that era was so tabloid heavy. And, like, were you new tabloid, like, murderers by name as if they were, like, A-list celebrities? And then also it has, like, a lot of 90s sitcom stars in it, like Wayne Knight from Seinfeld's in it and Kurtwood Smith from that 70s show and The Boss from Just Shoot Me. Like, a lot of, like, 90s television actors are in this movie, which feels really funny to see them next to like these like sort of big name celebrities. And it's mixed together in this like sort of post pulp fiction style where like the timelines are all scrambled and you're getting the story from all these different perspectives and you sort of have to piece them together in this like cubist revisionist history, depending on the unreliable narrator you listen to from like minute to minute. So yeah, I just, I really felt nostalgic for the era, but also felt like, this was tapping into something very specific about its era at the time where like it, it kind of earns that nostalgia. It's not just because it was made at that time. It's like really saying something about tabloid celebrity in the nineties. Well, yeah. And I think the style of the film, like every stylistic choice that Van Sant made adds to that overall critique. You know what I mean? Like doing the mockumentary stuff, doing the timeline jump, it all works and it's really nice to see a movie where all the like choices kind of come together and it all makes sense. I was very entertained by this movie. Big fan. I'm not that surprised by that. (laughs) This really felt like, you know, some middle ground between your, your and my sensibilities. I think 
the next two movies we have left are where we sort of like split apart and get to like things that we are specifically interested in that the next person might not be. I would agree with that. Let's get into that. You had the next movie lined up. So what did you make me watch in addition to The Incredible Shrinking Man? So I made you watch Amour, which is from 2012. It's a French tragedy, but it's written and directed by Michael Haneke, who we've talked about in previous episodes. You know, he directed Cachet, which I really loved. He did um, Funny Games, which I really love. And so when I watched this, I was kind of expecting your typical, you know, Haneke has like a certain, not really a style, but like. It's like a cold temperament. Like it's like a very distanced. Yeah. Non-emotional cutting eye. And I feel like he has a very accusatory, like prodding at his audience. I think he's like a combative relationship with his audience. Yeah, I would agree with that. So when I was watching this, I was sort of expecting that. And it's funny because it, it definitely is that, but because of the story, it to me, it adds so much to this kind of basic story. I mean, it's really just about this aging couple, Anne and George, who they're both retired music teachers and I believe they live in Paris and Anne gets really sick. She has a stroke and it's George's kind of responsibility to take care of her. And the film just sort of depicts her health declining rapidly. And it does so in that same like kind of cold, accusatory way where, again, his style is to kind of have the camera just linger on these characters and on these scenes and not move. In other movies, it was used for to like kind of a different effect. In this, it's almost impossible to watch. Like... There were scenes of this movie that are so like painful and so real. I'm like, this is not what I go to the movies for, but I need to see this because it's important, which I think is maybe where we might differ. Yeah, I was getting actively angry at this film in the second half. I was basically in like fuck you mode for the last like 45 minutes of this. But it's beautiful, like because the film does not shy away from what death looks like. I mean, I think that's the real thing. It's like when death is depicted in films, you still kind of know you're watching a film. The way it's depicted in a more is so real and it's like almost like cringeworthy and painful and you don't want to look at the screen. And the fact that Haneke just like keeps lingering there on these like really hard to watch moments, you know, where she's struggling to eat. She can't wipe herself. She is crying out in pain. This is all stuff that happens. It's going to happen to all of us if we live, you know, a long enough life. And again, I I don't think most people go to the movies for that. They go to the movies to kind of escape reality and this one is just putting it in a very cold way like right in your face. This is what death looks like and this is what it looks like to love someone and have to watch them suffer. That's its like strongest selling point is like this is like kind of a horror film about if you live your life exactly right and do everything correctly, even to the point where you have this like romantic partnership with someone who's like intellectually compatible with you and you live this like comfortable life of like affluence with your romantic partner, you're still going to die in pain. Your body's still going to fail you. That's where I think the movie has its like strongest selling point is this like monumental work of art. This is the horror of a life lived right. You will still expire in pain. It's not just about 
death and aging. I think it's more about what do you do for a loved one that's in pain? Like, I think the idea of like euthanasia is obviously central to this movie. It's like, what is love? Is love just like trying to prolong this person's life as long as possible? Or is it, hey, I see you're suffering. I want you not to suffer. And it confronts those questions in a very confrontational way that is, I'll admit, like extremely hard to watch. I mean, I was with the film for the most part until the second stroke. Why was that? I feel like Haneke is on his best behavior until that point. This won the Palme d'Or in 2012, which I think for a viewing project for you, if you ever want to go through the Palme d'Or winners, they seem to be on your wavelength. Like the last two, I think were Parasite and Shoplifters. So like maybe like going through the past Palme right. d'Or winners at can or like something you should look into. It also competed for best picture at the Oscars. It, it didn't win, but it was like in the running for that, which I think for someone as like prickly as Haneke is like pretty remarkable. And in the opening hour of the film, I can see why it got that sort of wide acclaim. And I was really feeling this like emotional story of these two people who love each other and their bodies fail them anyway. Like her body fails her after that first stroke to where she can no longer take care of herself. And it's like really embarrassing that she can't like wipe herself or like move around the apartment without her husband. And his body fails him as well in that he can't physically take care of this person who relies on him. Cause he's not like a young, strong mm-hmm. body anymore. You know, like he's like overextending himself trying to maintain normalcy for his wife who he still loves very much. Right. After the second stroke, that human connection and that like cycle of embarrassment and sadness and like bodily failure sort of gives way to this whole other layer where it's just, it feels like pointless torture to me. It's almost become a joke to me over the past couple of weeks to like just say hurts, hurts, hurts uh, every <laughs> now and terrible. then. Like that's all that happens in the second half of the movie. She's this like husk of a person. All she can do is express pain. Eventually, yeah, it does come to this euthanasia point where he like his kindness is to put her out of that misery. But Haneke, his unkindness to us is to let us sit through an hour of this person just only being able to feel and express pain over and over again. And it becomes numbing and pointless at a certain point where I was just like, oh, okay, never mind. Here's Haneke up to his actual usual tricks. This isn't him, you know, trying to make something more caring and emotional. This is like actually his normal thing. It's just, he tricks you into thinking he actually cares about the characters this time. It's, it's him attacking the audience like usual. See, I would push back on that a little bit because to me, that second half is where it really shifts. The way, same way you're feeling as like a viewer is exactly how the husband feels. Where it does, I think after a while, when you've dealt with someone that's going through so much pain, it does become numbing. And the movie does like have, I'd almost call it sort of like a torture porn thing going on, like emotional 100%. torture porn. That's kind of where I knew some of your criticism would be at, uh, which I definitely understand. But I think that's really just what it is. I mean, you could say Haneke is like kind of taking it over the top, but like a lot of people at the end of their life, that's what it comes down to. I mean, you can't communicate. All you can say is like, I'm in pain, like, please. 
And then that makes the ending so much more poignant and hard to, again, like hard to watch because you understand why he does it. Like if he were to do that act with her in the state she was after just the first stroke, he would seem like kind of a cruel monster. But when you see where her illness takes her like after the second stroke to really just like the depths of like humanity where she's not even really like a person anymore, then you like fully understand and sympathize with his choice to end her life. And I think you need to go through that to kind of come out the other side. But the thing is that the movie is over two hours long and the segment after the second stroke is like, I want to say half the movie. There's a long period of time where we're stewing in this sort of like sublingual, I only feel pain space. And it just drags on and on and on. And you get the point very quickly, but then there's still like another 40 more, minutes for you to stew and more. in it. And it really does feel like he's purposefully torturing the audience. And I feel like the point has gotten a lot sooner than he's willing to let go of it because I feel like the only reason that the uh, sort of emotional interpersonal stuff is established in the first half is to get us to that point where he can get to what he really likes, which is making us uncomfortable after a while. It's just like exhausting. And I just get combative. I'm like, well, fuck you. What am I even doing here? But see exactly like you're exhausted. You're combative. That's exactly what the George character feels towards the end. So the way he's able to elicit that response in you and a viewer to where you're actually feeling the exact same thing as the main character. And you're like, fuck, like, I want this to end. Like, stop. This has to stop. And it's like, that's what he ends up doing. He has that same thought process. Like, no, no more of this has to end here. And then he, you know, what I would say does like the humane thing. But I, I do think you're right that he's able to like, be this provocateur and make you feel uncomfortable. He loves that. But in this particular story, I think that's part of it. Like you are actually inhabiting the feelings that the main character is feeling. And I'm not going to lie and say that's not effective. It's very effective. I think he's doing exactly what he means to do very well. It was just like, I kind of lost like what the point of it was. And I got kind of mad because there were other things about the movie that I really liked. I really liked the nightmare with the hand that comes from behind the guy's head. Oh yeah. Even like the opening 10 minutes of the film, just in general, I thought was like a just sort of brilliant opening for a movie. Like you have this like dual break in on these two different timelines where like you both see police officers break into the apartment to find a dead body. So that there's a lot of, it's not even foreshadowing. It's just like a vision of like the misery that's to come. Mm-hmm. And then you have this other break in um, that sort of confuses the timeline where like, you know, this elderly couple has gone out to a night to hear music in the theater and their apartment's been like the lock's been broken. Right. So there's like a weird parallel there. And then there's also this really beautiful static Haneke shot. That's like really him at his best, very symmetrical view from the stage at the audience in the first few minutes, like settling in at this like musical concert mm-hmm. at, at the theater. It's a really great mirror for like us at home, you know, or in the movie theater, if we had seen this in 2012, 
uh, you know, settling down in our seats to like watch something like pristinely put together. And I was just like so ready to fall in love with a Haneke movie for the first time. <laughs> and, uh, and like maybe for the first hour I was with it. And then, yeah, like really it's in that second half where I just like really just got worn down. I was like, oh, okay, we're back to the basics here. He hasn't grown or changed in any way. He's not looking for a new tone. He's just like trying to bring a wider audience into like his space so that he can make them feel the way he always makes us feel. And that's, that's where I kind of was just like, okay, well, I don't understand the point of doing this again. Yeah. I mean, I think what I liked about it was he kind of took his style and I think you're right. Like this does have more mass appeal than like a cachet or funny games yet. It's still like undeniably him and it's got all his like characteristics, but that style works so well with this story for me that that exasperation that you're talking about in this particular story, it's like, okay, I'm, like I said before, it's like I'm feeling empathy, like I'm feeling exactly what this character is going through. And I, I think that that's pretty emotional for me. There's a lot of movies that deal with death. This movie, I feel like, really dealt with what it looks like, not in a way that was like cinematic, just like brutal and honest. And again, like almost to the verge of torture porn, hard to watch. You know, it reminded me of uh, the death of Louis the Fourteenth that we watched together. It was like <laughs> slow cinema where you just watch someone die on screen in real time. I was like, okay, I'm back to there. But see, like the difference is that movie had like a layer of humor to it, which made it, yeah. you know, made it palatable. There's no humor to be found in this. I feel like he was finding humor in the situation where maybe we weren't, especially towards the end. Like it felt like he was like enjoying a personal joke <laughs> in those last like 10 minutes, uh, even if no one else was cued in on what the punchline might've been. Well, I'm glad I could uh, subject you to such a rough watch. It was not an easy watch, but I, I don't think the other movie I picked would have been any easier for you. Maybe I actually enjoyed this movie. Okay, good. I'm glad to hear that. Well, okay. So you asked me like, what were the best two movies I've discovered like in quarantine? Mm-hmm. And I just sort of picked the two that jumped out at me, not necessarily thinking like what you might enjoy. So I, I had no idea what your reaction might've been to this. The next movie's from 1997. It's called Mary Jane's not a virgin anymore. It's a, the only feature length film from Sarah Jacobson. She died in the early two thousands, but in the nineties, sort of around the like riot girl movement in the mid nineties made a few underground films, mostly shorts it starts with a teenager losing her virginity in a graveyard in this like really horrifically uncomfortable way. The guy's like sort of plowing into her and she's like physically uncomfortable. And she's like, maybe we should stop because this isn't going the way I want it to feel. And he's like, are you about to come? Like he really just doesn't get it that uh, he's not like the sexual Lothario that he thinks he is. So after this like initial like horrific sexual experience, this teenager goes back to her job where all her friends hang out at a movie theater and she basically swears off sex. She's like, all you are idiots for having sex with each other. Um, sex is terrible. Why would anybody do that ever again willingly? And then over the course of the movie, she learns through various crushes and like asking friends and like just sort of having better experiences that sex can be fun with the right partner and with the right attitude. So the movie is on one level, like this sort of like teen melodrama where like he likes her, but she likes this other guy and he's in love with so-and-so 
And it's just sort of like spiraling out from there among these like teen punks who like work in this like sort of shitty rundown, like second run theater. But along the way, uh, Sarah Jacobson sneaks in all these like after school special style lessons on like the joys of masturbation and like the fact that bisexual people exist and you might just not notice that they're like around or like the perils of teen pregnancy or like the perils of drunk driving or what uh, it means to live with parents who obviously hate each other and should be divorced. And how do you deal with that? It has this like sort of like preachy tone to it, which you might not notice at first, like all these lessons sort of crop up naturally and the movie serves as both like a sort of like run of the mill, like teen punk picture, uh, like a very, very low budget version of something like Clueless or like 10 Things I Hate About You, like the uh, bargain bin, like $10 budget version of that. But at the same time, it's like overtly this sex education for punks. And obviously, punks need it. Like, she is actively talking about how punk sexuality is just as macho and cruel and unself-aware as any other sexuality. Like their politics may be anarchist and leftist, but their sexual politics have not caught up with that yet. And they need to like a course correction to like learn how to like have good sex. And this movie is like trying to sneak that in uh, while being like a sort of a teen comedy at the same time. I think it works both as a melodrama and as like an after school special, like sort of turning punks in the right direction sexually. I have no idea what your reaction might've been to this. So I kind of just want to hear like what you felt watching this movie. Well, it's, it's funny when I first started watching it, I was taken aback by how obviously low budget it was. You could tell like it wasn't made with a lot of money. Like none of these people are professional actors, but as like, I kind of got into the rhythm of the movie, like, I think because it was such a DIY sort of thing and like that punk aesthetic, like and a lot of the scenes are just characters sort of hanging out with one another, drinking, talking, drinking a lot, just chugging whiskey or whatever. For amateur actors, I actually started to feel like I knew these people, like I was hanging out with them and especially with the main character, Jane, like, like I started to kind of care about her and like, so it just felt like you're hanging out with like a bunch of punks and you're kind of going through the trials and tribulations of merging adulthood. And it just, as the movie was going on, and you know, it does kind of go through the typical, like, oh, this character got pregnant. Oh, this character was involved in a drunk driving accident. Like you said, those kind of after school special things, like in a different like movie that wouldn't have really resonated. But for some reason, like I actually was like kind of, swept up in these characters and i think what helped too is like i thought the message that they were getting across was great i I think it didn't shy away from kind of how awful sex is in the beginning we are so bad at sex like we're taught like all the wrong things about it before we do it (laughs) and like and we're encouraged not to talk about it because it's like shameful so you have to like trial by error until you like learn to like pay attention to the other person and like not sort of plow through it well and there there was a great scene where her friends telling her about like the clit and about masturbation and you know you got to learn what you like so you can communicate that to a partner which is like you know obviously that's good advice and then to see jane actually do that exact thing she has this like revelation where she masturbates and the heavens open up and then she you know hooks up with this guy and she's able to like communicate what it is she wants 
and then she successfully orgasms for the first time. The messaging, it was good. It's like stuff that kids and, you know, punks and anybody that's kind of figuring their stuff out, like, should hear. That masturbation um, conversation is like one of my favorite lines of the movie, too, where like, She's like, you mean I'm not a loser if I masturbate? She goes, Jane, you're a loser if you don't masturbate. (laughs) It's so on the surface. And I feel like it's making fun of particularly like 1950s, like Road to Ruin movies, like um, Reefer Madness and like all these like Roger Corman pictures where like as soon as you have sex, like you get in a motorcycle accident. You know, it's like this like very over the top melodrama about people misbehaving and like sort of getting their comeuppance for it, but it's intention is so pure and like it's using those tropes and like making fun of those tropes in order to like get across these like very sex positive, like good for you messages. And I would even say like the second time I watched it, I was even more into the characters, particular arcs because those lessons became more of like a background fodder. Mm-hmm. And like, I started noticing more, like well sketched out aspects of the characters earlier in the film, before you really know who they are, the movie already knows who they are. So like the second time watching her have sex in the cemetery for the first time. And there's like an establishing shot of like what cemetery we're at. I wouldn't have noticed that the first time, like what the name of the cemetery is or anything. Mm -hmm. The second time you're watching the movie, you're like, Oh, that cemetery comes into play later. Or like that character will see him again in like a different context. And like, wait, wait, no. So, elaborate on that because i i've only watched it once so i don't know if i picked up on that so like the cemetery where she loses her virginity is the same cemetery she goes to where her friend died in the drunk driving accident oh okay and there's a similar establishing shot of the same um nameplate at the cemetery sort of like establishing where it is so she's having all these conflicted memories of both like the best and the worst sex she's had in her like limited sexual experience like in the same space And it means two different things in the two different scenes. And also one aspect that I really loved is that Jane has a huge crush on the guy she works with at the theater. What's his name? He's one of the, like the posse punks. Uh, He looks like he's like straight edge or something. He doesn't drink as much as the rest of them or if at all. And like, he's really into like happy go lucky uh, kitsch. He's like the pop punk character where the rest of them are like grunge punks, but she's like into him. And so I kept thinking, you know, they have, this great scene where they both quit their job at the theater when they have a new owner. They go on this like date, you know, they're both off because they don't have jobs. So they're enjoying the day. And then she reveals she has a crush on him. And, you know, I thought like, Oh, he's obviously he's a nerd. Like he's going to go for her and, you know, happily ever after. But it felt so real and complex that he was like, no, like I like you as a friend. I don't want to like, going anything romantically with you and she's kind of let down but they remain friends and you know it didn't go for that like storybook sort of ending it was more complex and real in the ways like stuff actually plays out a lot of the times so i appreciated that too yeah i feel like in a straightforward comedy she would have been paired off with a man or like one of her like potential love interests at the end but i think the movie is more like a melodrama about like teen life And that's like one of the lessons she learns in her like, you know, newfound sexuality is like not everyone you're into is going to be into you back. Um, And his response really is like a great template on how to let someone down gently and like be respectful about it. Yeah. He was like, you know, it took a lot of 
courage to tell me that. And the way the characters talk to themselves in other situations is very much like a template for how to do it. Like you said earlier with her friend telling her about masturbation and with this scene, like how to let someone down the right way. There's a lot of good stuff in there like that. And I think if I had seen this movie at the right time when I was still like a little punk asshole idiot, you know, it might have done some good in my life. Well, I thought a lot about you when I was watching this, to be honest, just (laughs) because it specifically. Well, yeah, just because it's so I don't know. It reminded me a lot just with the music, like the soundtrack was very cool, by the way. Yeah. You know, but it reminded me of the kind of stuff you're into back in the like Bikini Kill and and all that. And just, you know. You were a punk back in the day, and you worked in a movie theater at one point. So, yeah, I kind of thought about you in, in that context. I think Sarah Jacobson might be, like, too, like, one of the purest versions of, like, what a Riot Girl filmmaker would be. Like, her big calling card movie is this short film called I Was a Teenage Serial Killer. Mm-hmm. And it's basically just this woman murdering 19 men, one for every year she's been alive, Uh, for all these like various microaggressions to, you know, grander sexist aggressions where like, you know, a man hits on her in public or like degrades her in conversation and she like murders him for the transgression, like as as, a cathartic way. And it was made in the nineties during the like riot girl movement. Um, It has a soundtrack with, I think two songs from heavens to Betsy, which were like contemporaries of bikini kill. And uh, Mm -hmm. one of the members moved on to be in Sleater Kinney, which is like a big Riot Girl staple as well. So, you know, she has like real like Riot Girl credentials. And that's where I felt like I was naturally drawn to this material yeah. uh, in a way that I was not sure what you would make of this. But at the same time, like I'm saying earlier, like I think I would have benefited from watching this at a younger age where like, even when I was listening to that stuff, I don't think I was absorbing the politics as well as I should have, especially in my like sexual behavior. And I feel like she Jacobson was specifically trying to like course correct people who were like politically engaged by this like punk movement, but like still needed to like learn how to have interpersonal relationships with each other. And I feel like she was like actively undoing bad lessons learned by like Hollywood movies. The first scene you see is intercutting between Jane having this awful losing her virginity experience in the graveyard And it's intercutting that with like the Hollywood version where like Mm -hmm. someone loses their virginity and it's like the best sex they'll ever have. Like she's like making fun of like the bad lessons that movies teach you and is like actively trying to course correct that. And I I found that very like endearing and fascinating. I was actually, I was surprised at how much I enjoyed this movie because I didn't read anything about it beforehand. I just started it up. I was like, oh, wow. And I always get inspired by movies that were made like on a budget, especially something like this that was made on like an extremely tight budget, I would imagine, and just made it work and told a good story that had some good life lessons. I'm glad that's true because it definitely felt like taking a shot. Um, I'm sorry, I couldn't reciprocate on the uh, Amore front. (laughs) Well, (laughs) that's probably a little little harder to, uh, to enjoy, I would imagine. Yeah, it's a tougher sell. Definitely. Well, I do want to like kind of wrap up just by I did make notes on like how I think each of these movies tie into like the quarantine aesthetic, which I thought was just kind of interesting because that was like what guided these choices in the first place. Mm -hmm. I think you were a lot more on point, even though it wasn't something you were thinking about. But like in 
the incredible shrinking man. He's like literally trapped in his apartment, like in his house and cannot leave. Well, and then in a, in a more, the couple, you don't see them except for that one scene at the, the concert. Like they never leave their apartment. Like they're stuck yeah, there. They're physically stuck there. So how did you think? To die for tied in. Mine were more of a stretch, I think. Because <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yours yeah. were like very literal. To die for, I'm thinking there's like a news media obsession right now. We're like part of the reason I'm having a hard time like writing movie reviews or like doing anything purposeful is because I keep checking for news media updates or like social media updates for like what other people are doing with their time. Mm-hmm. And like just endlessly scrolling through the same three apps for like some connection to the outside world where like that movie is specifically about like news media obsession and like specifically wanting to become famous within that paradigm, but like needing eyes on you in this like televised or like broadcast space. And then for Mary Jane's not a virgin anymore, maybe even more of a stretch, but like I just fucking miss movie theaters. Like all these kids work in a movie theater and they're hanging out like, partying in the empty theater once all the like customers leave it just like felt very comforting to like return to that space like oh yeah i remember what like hanging out in the movie theater feels like and i, I well, remember and what also it feels like just like hanging out with your friend drinking on a couch or going yeah. to like a punk show where you're surrounded by these sweaty people it felt like kind of this bygone era that maybe we'll never quite go back to not to be all doomsday here. I would hope that at some point we can <laughs> at least record this podcast in the same space again. You know, I don't want to do this over Skype forever. It's not fun or it's not yeah. as fun. Well, we'll get back to it. I'm sure I'm hopeful. Well, this was a good grab bag of movies because they had like really nothing to do with each other. And that kind of plays into like the sort of scatterbrained feeling I've had lately. And it felt good to talk about what life in this current limbo feels like. It was fun to talk about movies again. Because it's been a while. Well, Brittany and I will be back in about two weeks' time, maybe even a little less. Uh, we're going to be talking about Madonna in the 1990s. That's a much more focused <laughs> topic. And yeah, maybe the podcast will focus a little more as we like get more in the groove of this new era. But it felt good to just sort of talk about like the mood of the times right now, too, in the meantime. And um, like I said earlier, movie theaters are like reopening in New Orleans again. Um, it's kind of a mix of like older titles and stuff that's opening on VOD at the same time. I'm not sure how that's going to shake out over the next few weeks. I don't think the people who own the movie theaters know that either, but in the meantime, I'm still posting for our like weekly roundup of what's playing in town. I'm still posting just like what's on streaming that we've recommended before. Uh, so there's like Swamp Flicks approved films that are like on streaming platforms because personally I'm going to continue watching movies at home. I'm not quite ready to return to the theatrical environment yet. Uh, And I'll post a link in this like shows notes just for our spot. Anytime you want a recommendation for something that's playing in local theaters, that's normally where I would send you. But for now it's like stuff that's playing anywhere on different streaming platforms. Um, And I update it every Wednesday and uh, James and I will be back I, I hope so in some capacity in the next month uh, with another episode, if he's willing to deal with the Skype platform again. I don't know. I don't mind it, actually. I've kind of gotten used to it. The new normal. The new norm, yeah. Oh, my God. I hate that phrase. <laughs> <laughs> All right, dude. We'll see you all in a couple of weeks. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.